0: Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the LGO Playbook Podcast. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Gene Kim. Gene is a multiple award-winning CTO and DevOps researcher and author. He has been researching high-performing technology organizations for over 23 years. He was the founder and cto of tripwire which commercialized the open source software he wrote in 1992 at purdue university gene is also the co-author of the devops handbook the phoenix project and most recently the unicorn project in our conversation we define concepts like devops technical debt and data visibility we jump back to hear about gene's experiences at tripwire and then move forward to review the state of DevOps report to understand what high performance truly looks like. We also discuss Gene's perspective on the importance of culture and the idea of psychological safety within an organization. We dig deep into the imperative for leadership within an organization to support DevOps practices as a whole and developers as individuals. We also have a special appearance by Dr. Steven Speer, a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management and author of the award-winning book, The High Velocity Edge, as well as the widely read Harvard Business Review article, Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System. We're thrilled to have both Gene and Steve appear on this episode, and please join me in welcoming them both. Jean, thank you so much for joining us today on the LGO Playbook podcast. We are thrilled to be chatting with you and just listening to some of your insights on how organizations should be thinking about DevOps and digital transformations. So a very warm welcome uh, and thank you for being here.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to be here. And I, as I mentioned before, I, I loved listening to your podcast. I especially love the uh, interview you did about Dr. Arnold Burnett. I learned a ton about aviation safety <laughs> and it was awesome to hear about uh, all the achievements and aspirations of your classmates on the uh, ladies of LGO. So congratulations on having a phenomenal peer group and getting access to all the vast expertise at MIT Sloan.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much. Yeah, we're excited to have you on it and to join the ensemble of speakers we've had this season. So I thought today uh, maybe we would get started with your journey. I've seen you describe yourself as a, a DevOps enthusiast. So I'd love to understand how that enthusiasm was generated throughout your career. And, and maybe you can kind of walk us through your career progression along the way.
1: Oh, uh, for sure. I've had the privilege of studying high performing technology organizations, and that started in 1999. That was when I was the CTO and technical founder of a company called Tripwire in the information security space. And so we identified these amazing organizations that simultaneously had the best project due date performance and development, uh, the best operational reliability and stability, and the best posture of security and compliance. So, you know, like uh, any good person grounded in operations research, we want to understand what, how do those high performers become high performers so that we can understand how other organizations could replicate those amazing outcomes. And so uh, you can imagine a 23-year journey. There were many surprises, but one of them certainly has been you know, being drawn into the middle of the DevOps movement, which I think is so urgent and important. You know, Like the lean movements in the 1980s and 90s, you know, industries are transforming. We're in a period of incredible disruption. And so one of the the cool things I got to do in that journey was. Uh, a cross-population study of technology organizations. So this spanned six years, 36,000 respondents. And this was with Dr. Nicole Forsgren and uh, Jez Humble. And this was the state of DevOps research. And it was just amazing to be able to see so vividly what does high performance look like and what are the architectural practices, technical practices and cultural norms that enable and predict performance. Maybe just to you know, kind of show you where I am now. My area of passion since 2014 has been studying devops not in the tech giants not Facebook Amazon Netflix Google's Microsofts but in large complex organizations the largest brands across every industry vertical and uh, study how they're adopting devops principles and patterns and using them to win in the marketplace and so it's my genuine belief that as much economic value that the tech giants have created you know certainly trillions of dollars that will be dwarfed by how much economic value that will be created when the best known brands across every industry vertical enable their technology workers to be as productive as if they were at a Facebook, Netflix, uh, a tech giant. And and so that will, in my mind, there's just no doubt that will generate trillions of dollars of economic value per year, right? And so when that happens, right, Right. suddenly impossible problems become very, very possible.
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to get to the, the state of DevOps report. I think there are so many interesting insights coming out of that. But maybe just from your journey, starting with Tripwire, I guess I was wondering, what was DevOps like at Tripwire um, with the start <laughs> of, of Tripwire Enterprise or even I think it was Tripwire for, for servers before that? I would think that there are many of the same challenges um, that organizations face today with software development and IT operations that were just as relevant back then. So I'd love to hear what that was like at, at Tripwire itself.
1: Oh terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's all fixed out there from for 13 years uh from 1997 to 2010 and so that was shortly before uh you know we had filed to go public and so uh I I say terrible right because you know, it with some embarrassment that you know I can look back and see just how uh, poor some of the decisions we made were and when I say we I I mean sometimes me <laughs> right and uh, uh yeah, I think you know I think two Things come to mind. Uh, one is uh, I, I can remember this decision. This must have been around 2004, where uh, yeah, our build server broke, right? And you know it had worked for years, and uh, there was this initiative to basically create a new build server and hire a source code administrator. And I remember being a part of that decision, saying, "No, no, we need to hire more developers," <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, not realizing that uh, we had taken out the one piece, uh, the mechanism that was giving us daily feedback across how all the components across somewhere between 80 and 150 engineers uh, were working. And so, you know, it wasn't until probably 2012 when I was hanging out with Jez Humble, who was a co-author on the DevOps Handbook. He wrote this very famous book called the the Continuous Development Book, Continuous Delivery. And you know, he was describing the need for continuous integration, continuous delivery, right? And uh, you know, I remember taking notes, we were working on the book together and I was like, laughing at you know things he was saying. And then it hit me. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> like. That is exactly what we weren't doing at Tripwire in 2004, and when we when that build server broke, you know, suddenly we found that we weren't integrating code from all the teams together, and suddenly we went from from shipping a CD. That's how we did it back then. You know, it would take six weeks. Uh, it would take us three months to a uh, year and a half, <laughs> right? And so you know, the. Almost 10 years later, I realized what a fatal mistake that was, right? And so if your competitors are being able to ship releases uh, once a year and you're stuck at once every two years, that is a an inherent competitive disadvantage. So it's obvious now, uh, but it certainly wasn't obvious back in 2004. So that's certainly, I think, I I laugh about it now, but I think there are many organizations uh, that also don't have a continuous integration build process where The work of hundreds or even thousands of engineers are being ideally integrated and proved and tested. And so at any given point, you are in a releasable state. And so maybe just to put some uh, benchmarks around that. Uh, Capital One has, I'm guessing, probably around 20,000 developers. Uh, Google has 60,000 developers. So, you know, whenever you look at these kind of, you know, famous properties, you know, that is the work of thousands or even tens of thousands of software developers.
0: Yeah, I, I always think it's so interesting when that aha moment of, oh, this is this is the value of, of mm-hmm. DevOps and, and maybe even agile methodology. This is how we can actually drive value and and approach the the same level as some of those tech giants. But I'm wondering maybe for our listeners who who might not be aware, you have transitioned from this founder, CTO of Tripwire to DevOps evangelist and researcher and author. So maybe you could expand a little bit more on that aha moment and really uh, if you could provide what your definition uh, of DevOps is and and why you think it's so important to organizations.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. And so here's the definition that we put into the DevOps handbook in 2016. It is the technical practices, architectural practices, and cultural norms that allow organizations to quickly and safely innovate, experiment, as well as ship value to customers. And we do that in a way where we can preserve world-class reliability, security, and stability. And so why do we care about that? It's so that we can uh, win in the marketplace. And so as much as I love that definition, because it doesn't actually say what DevOps is, it's really kind of the outcomes that we want. There's a definition that I love even more, and it comes from a friend who uh, led the ways of working at Barclays. So his name is John Smart. And Barclays was founded in the year 1635, which actually predates the invention of paper cash. And his definition is Better value, sooner, safer, and happier. <laughs> and I love that because one, it's shorter. And two, it's really difficult to argue against. I mean, I think even your biggest DevOps skeptic would not claim that they want less value later with more misery and danger, <laughs> right? So I think it's a very persuasive way <laughs> to sell kind of what we're trying to do within the DevOps community. And I think over the years, back in 1997, you know, my area of focus was really information security and IT operations. And you know, as over the next decade, it was really, Start to incorporate how does development fit into that value stream. And then now it really is, it's just not the technology function. It really is to what extent does business truly integrate technology into all aspects of strategy and operations? And if I can just share one more embarrassing story.
0: Absolutely. That
1: <laughs> yeah, was around 2006. And this is probably one of the worst moments of my professional career, it was actually when I watched a customer use our product for the first time. I was with an engineer. It was for about three hours. And I literally felt like I was going to throw up. <laughs> There's a certain kind of routine operation that we expected everyone to do, you know, say weekly. And it required something like 52 clicks, right? And the, the whole time, uh, this person is apologizing for sorry, I know there's probably a better way to do this. And as uh, engineer Tom Good and I, we were thinking, no, <laughs> no, there isn't, unfortunately, because you know, we're, we're horrible people. And so that was kind of my whole aha moment around not just technologies around the user interaction design, it's really trying to understand customer goals. And yeah, I think whenever we talk about customers, really trying to understand customer needs, customer journeys, and having a discipline around design to do that, I mean, you know, that certainly has to be a part of that conversation.
0: Yeah. And I think that just really drives home the value of DevOps practices. And, and that really comes through in, I think, both of the books, you know, the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project. If you're focused on the customer, you're inherently delivering more value. And so making sure that you can maintain that focus so that you're not cluttered with technical debt and features with 52 clicks or, or something <laughs> is makes it a very clear, whatever you're delivering, whatever you're spending time on, especially that of your developers, uh, is really driving value for customers. But I, I did just want to bring up the Phoenix Project, the Unicorn Project, Phoenix Project uh, out in, in 2013, and then six years later, the Unicorn Project was here. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what value or what additional content you felt needed to be added to the Phoenix Project to maybe serve as the motivation for the Unicorn Project. And I wonder if it did have anything to do with that state of DevOps report, the things that you were uncovering as you were speaking to all those companies.
1: Oh, holy cow. Yeah, for, <laughs> for sure. Right. So I, I can't overstate just how much I've learned since the Phoenix Project came out in 2013. and and I, I feel fortunate beyond words every day that the extent of my ignorance you know, isn't, isn't fully revealed in the book. And if it is, I'll, I'll blame on my co-authors. But uh, yeah, I think the the Phoenix Project was really modeled after the goal. Very famous book um, that was written in 1986 by Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt. Uh, famous that uh, shows up in almost every MBA curriculum, operations uh, research uh, curriculum. And uh, the, the main persona in that book is the VP of IT operations. And so it was really kind of the goal was really to paint what the injustice looked like when kind of the constraint is really, you know, the operations and infrastructure folks and just how decisions are made without any thought of like what the implications downstream are. Now, I would say the, uh, and I'm just delighted uh, that to what extent the Phoenix Project is read by technologists and, you know, increasingly people within business leadership to sort of get an aha moment of to what extent they are really dependent on technology and to what extent you know the, the, the needs of those technology leaders are not served uh, and what they can do to enable them to succeed, right? Because if winning requires technology, well, then we certainly shouldn't abuse <laughs> and make decisions that preordain disastrous outcomes downstream. Now, for me, the, the motivation in the Unicorn Project was to sort of capture so much, many of those learnings. And it was to really retell the tale, not from the perspective of Operation, but from development. And, and I would say there are kind of four main things that I want to explore further. Uh, one was just the absence of understanding of all the invisible structures required to truly unleash developer productivity. And we're talking about Capital One, 20,000 developers, Google, 20,000 developers, Microsoft, now 85,000 developers. And, and so, what is really required to get them fully productive? Uh, two is, you know, there's this other orthogonal problem. So the DevOps movement rightly pointed out that it was so difficult to get code into production. Customers are actually getting value. There's another orthogonal problem around data. And so often data is stuck in data warehouses, systems of records, and it takes weeks, months, or quarters to get it to where it needs to go, which is in the hands of people who make decisions. And something like 30 to 50 percent of any organization's workforce Use or manipulate data in their daily work. So arguably, this is even a larger problem than what DevOps set out to solve. And I guess the third one that has I remain fixated on is you know what do we really need from leadership to succeed? I think kind of if you look at even in the high performers within that I study within the DevOps enterprise community, I feel like the biggest constraint is to what degree is there really a great uh, working relationship between business leadership and technology leadership? And often. These technology initiatives are flourishing, but eventually it hits a ceiling <laughs> where they are almost like become order takers from the business, and uh, we know that you know that's not what you want. You know you want the to be a co-creative relationship between business and technology that they're, they realize they are fully mutually dependent upon each other.
0: Absolutely. And you know what, I, I'd love, I have so many questions on each of those three areas you brought up. Maybe we can start in order with them. So you mentioned the invisible structures that are needed to enable developers to get work done. And frequently I hear, and in a lot of your, your previous speeches, I hear the conversation get back to this point of visibility. But I think in the Phoenix project, it was exposing work in progress through Kanban boards, so operational visibility. There's also this data visibility and data flow. I'd like to maybe unpack that just a little bit with why do you think visibility is so important and how does it actually enable teams to be more productive and organizations to have a better flow?
1: Yeah, so uh, one of the most rewarding collaborations I've had is uh, with Dr. Steven Speer at uh, also MIT Sloan, and that's how, how we met. And You know, so he's famous for many things, but among them was studying the Toyota production process, (laughs) of which, you know, the most widely downloaded Harvard Business Review article of all time, Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System, that was based in part on his uh, Ph.D., uh, and his doctoral dissertation, <laughs> which in, in service of he worked on the plant floor of a tier one to supplier. And so, of course, he's uh, moved beyond just the uh, rep, you know, high repetition work of manufacturing to engine design at Pratt & Whitney to uh, semiconductor design and fabrication, uh, healthcare organizations. But, you know, I think it is almost those concepts are almost easiest in manufacturing because everything's visible, right? Unlike knowledge work, right? uh, Inventory piles up, it can go high to the ceiling. And I love in the Phoenix Project, I think one of the most uh, visceral metaphors, people say, are going on the plant floor on the catwalk, right? And you can see inventory piling up. And unfortunately, in uh, knowledge work and especially development, because you can't see it, you can't drop it on someone's foot, you can't trip over it, it it can pile up, right? And uh, and yet, work and process for knowledge work is just as destructive as it is in manufacturing. So I think that's one part. And also, I think the in my research with Steve is that the need for specificity and precision in knowledge work is even greater because uh, often it's mental models is on. Uh, It requires a shared understanding, and so if you don't actually have have something concrete and tangible (laughs) that you can't measure with a ruler, the need for increased precision is uh, even more difficult. So, you know, coming from a, I know you come from a technology background, right, it's uh,
2: uh,
1: errors because of two people working together with a not exactly the same mental model, you know, can be disastrous.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you mentioned kind of piling up of, of these different tasks and, and things like that. And that actually brings us maybe to your second point about data mobility. Um, I'm wondering here if you're referencing a little bit about technical debt. I know in the Unicorn Project, you speak about technical debt, and I would imagine that the prospect of tackling that, uh, that debt within an organization is, is quite daunting. So first, I was wondering if you could just define what what technical debt is and why do organizations have it? How does it build up? And specifically, what are these tech organizations doing to keep that balance down, reduce that balance and and keep it down?
1: Yeah. And it's an embarrassingly simple question. And I'm equally embarrassed to say that I I don't really know, but I can tell you sort of like what other people say it is and what the side effects are, uh, which I can definitely personally attest to. So Ward Cunningham coined this, coined this phrase about 25 years ago, and he said, technical debt is that which you feel the next time that you want to make a change. <laughs> and so and it gets the, even the way he framed it, uh, technical debt, uh, he's really making a metaphor simile uh, to financial debt in that if you're not actively addressing it, it's going to get worse over time. And, and so I think in our work, technical debt accrues every time that you manually perform a deployment. You every time you manually configure an environment. It happens every time that you write code doesn't that doesn't have automated testing. And the reason for that is that the more code you have without automation, it becomes even more expensive to test. And so that alone should tell you that you know that's going to lead to horrendous outcomes because your cost of uh, maintenance and testing grows at least linearly. I, I think the this also exists in other Domains. In fact, I'm morally certain <laughs> that exists in other domains, but uh, I can't exactly tell you what the isomorphic terms are. But you know, in so much of what we talk about, uh, if you look at Lean or uh, Steve Spear's work, uh, you know, he talks about improvement of daily work, and there's a, I love this phrase that improvement of daily work is more important than daily work itself. And I think what it suggests is that entropy exists, and that not improving daily work doesn't result in a static trajectory because of entropy things will get worse <laughs> and that and so i think one of the questions i'd love to have a better answer for in the next uh, year or two is what exactly are the dynamics of that and so in the software industry for whatever reason uh, i th- i think the effects are uh most visible and profoundly destructive uh, i think the best example of this is was written about by a gentleman named Marty Kagan so he wrote the amazing book Inspired How to Create Products that Customers Love and you know one of the things that he recommends and what he's trained generations of product owners to do is whatever cycles that you have in engineering take 20% off the table they're not there for product owners to spend they are there for engineers to use however they best see fit to fix problematic areas of code you know to refactor to rearchitect to automate and where he learned this in his journey was in the early 2000s because he was the VP of product management at eBay. And many will remember that this was a time when eBay crashing multiple times a day was headline news, right? (laughs) And so he he didn't ship a major feature for the entire two years he was at eBay because all the engineers were just trying to keep the site up. And so his lesson that he put in his book was that if you don't pay your 20% tax, the inevitable outcome is that you're gonna spend 100% tax, right? So you have to pay it down as you go. And so you see this over and over, you know, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, uh, LinkedIn, all of these famously talk about how they almost died because of technical debt and did these amazing things to essentially stop working on features for however long was needed so that they could make it safe to deploy code, make it safe to actually, you know, innovate again.
0: Absolutely, and I think what's really interesting is how the focus of developers is such a commodity within organizations, whether it's a tech organization or just a large complex organization that's that's looking to get more technical. But you mentioned um, whether or not you're deploying new features, and I'm, something that's interesting, I think, is from a from an agile perspective. If if we're thinking about how to generate a backlog, if you're a large complex organization. And maybe you currently use this waterfall model of development, how do you actually think about generating your backlog and where do you prioritize addressing technical debt within that backlog over maybe newer feature development which might have more visibility, which leadership might be more interested in? Maybe from that perspective of an organization that is just, is just getting these systems up and running, where do you place technical debt on that prioritization scale?
1: Oh, for sure. I would not claim that backlog prioritization is an area of expertise of mine. But I think what is often missed um, is once pick whatever you're going to work on (laughs) when you're done with it, how quickly can you get into production? So the link with the operations management terminology, you know, we call it the code deployment lead time. So if it's in version control, you know, if you start the lead time clock there, how quickly can you integrate it with all the other components, go through testing, go through deployment? so that you have, get it working, <laughs> so that customers are actually saying thank you. And we know through the state of DevOps research that what great organizations can do is they can do it in an hour or less, whereas lower performers might take weeks, months, or even quarters. And, and so there's an argument to me made that says it doesn't actually matter how quickly you can actually write the feature. Uh, a critical part of getting fast lead time to market is how quickly can you integrate test, and deploy it? So I think we could get away you know, back in 2004, having lead times measured in months, you have competitors who can do it in one hour or less, you're at an inherent competitive disadvantage if you are taking uh, weeks, months or quarters. I think the other thing that has become even more clear now, it was so fun to read a book uh on the Sidewinder Missile Program by Dr. Ron Westrom. So we cite him so heavily in the state of DevOps research. So uh, Dr. Ron Westrom, he studied healthcare organizations, nuclear reactor operations. He created this typology model where he characterized organizations into either pathological, where we hide information. Uh, messengers of bad news are shot. Uh, we discourage bridging between teams. We cover up failures, right? He, he said that in the middle, you have bureaucratic organizations where kind of the goal is to sort of meet out justice, <laughs> right? The uh, highest performance, he characterized them as uh, generative, where we seek new information. We encourage bridging between teams in our world. It means that InfoSec is not just InfoSec's job, just like Uptime and availability isn't just Ops' job. It's everybody's job, especially developers, right? And, you know, we, we seek novelty. And he wrote this amazing book on the Sidewinder missile program in the 1960s and compared it against the, the Falcon missile program, which was canceled and the Sparrow missile program, both incredibly poor performers compared to the Sidewinder. And he described exactly the same dynamics that we see, you know, in DevOps. Do we want teams that can be cross-functional, that we aren't locked into rigid architectures that constrain us, that have collegial and collaborative working relationships across functional specialties. And so I think that, too, is a part of the keys of making great technology organizations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And getting back now to the the seed of DevOps report, I think that's such a unique opportunity to peer behind the curtain of the inner workings of a number of tech organizations, but also non-tech organizations. And I know you speak about unicorns and horses here. So I think what's interesting is with that, the results of that report showing what characterizes elite performers and what characterizes maybe lower performers. If you are in that lower performer bucket, what if you were maybe advising them strategically, how would you, if you're looking to improve to that elite status, either increment or maybe through a larger transformation, how would you tackle some of the challenges that you're, you're currently facing, assuming that you're in that low-performing bucket?
1: Yeah. So a lot of this went into a book called Accelerate uh, that I wrote with the lead author was Dr. Nicole Forsgren and, and Jez Humble, who I, I mentioned before. And it really was, it describes the state of DevOps research and one of the coolest parts of that book is uh, something we call the bfd the big fulsome diagram <laughs> it kind of shows the link between architectural practices technical practice and cultural norms and how it impacts technology performance and ultimately organizational performance as measured by to what degree do these organizations exceed profitability market share and productivity goals you know to what extent can they achieve organizational mission goals another marker was to what extent do employees recommend their organization is a great place to work. And so this diagram actually shows what you need to do to become a high performer. So you have these technical practices like continuous integration, test and build, like right? the, what we didn't have at Tripwire back in 2014 <laughs> and in, in 2004, the lean product development and uh, integration of user feedback into the development process uh, But That's also where we you know cultural norms, like the Western organizational topology model, psychological safety, all those things combined together for organizations to improve. And you know, since 2014, one of the big questions I pose to the DevOps Enterprise community is like, what are the biggest obstacles facing your work? right? And, and so across the community, we can see in the early years, it was really to what degree can dev and ops work together. But over the years, uh, I think it's ceased being just a dev and ops problem in that part of the value stream, it became external to that, uh, whether it was information security or regulators or compliance people. But now I think it's all about to what degree is there a real trusted working relationship between business leadership and technology leadership. And I think that's really, I'd almost characterize this is now stumbling into a problem that is felt not just in technology, but in healthcare, in almost all aspects of work. In fact, I mean, I think it was most famously described in the Team of Teams book, where in the beginning of the book, describing how the Joint Special Forces Task Force 2004 was struggling to dismantle i mean they could not dismantle the terrorist networks despite the fact that they were much smaller <laughs> but they were far nimbler and so that was really a story about how information flows through an organization about how do you take the work that spans a whole bunch of functional specialties whether it's you know Army Rangers Navy Seals intelligence agencies and really harmonize those efforts to achieve a collective goal. And so uh, the end state is that without really changing the organizations, they did actually change the structure and the resulting dynamics so that they could ultimately push decision making to the lowest levels of the organization, create uh, networks across the the middle leadership, across uh, an organization that spanned hundreds of thousands of people. And I think, you know, there lies a hint of an answer of, you know, what is needed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. I would love to touch upon a couple of things that you spoke about. So the first is I think just the importance of culture and the importance of leadership emphasis and focus on adopting DevOps. And so I'd be interested to hear what do you think or what have you observed in all the companies that you've interacted with? What cultural norms work and and how do you actually generate that culture to uphold and to propagate and continue really best in class DevOps practices?
1: Yeah, for sure. One of the I mentioned that I've been studying this DevOps enterprise community since 2014, and I got to tell you the story of someone who just influenced my thinking so much. Uh, Her name is Heather Mickman. So back in 2014, she was a senior director of development at Target, so the U.S.'s second largest retailer. And the business problem that she set out to solve was that every time a developer wanted access to a system of records, that could be products, pricing, promotions, Store information, customer information, purchases, and so forth. They would often have to wait six to nine months for the integration teams to connect whatever they were building with whatever was on the back end. And so they created something called the API Enablement Project. And the goal was to essentially copy all that information to this next generation system record so that any developer could retrieve, change, or delete information through versioned APIs. And it's amazing that, you know, certainly by 2018, Hundreds of initiatives were enabled through that. Things like ship to store. So, if you're a retailer competing against Amazon, this is a very strategic capability. The Pinterest integration, Starbucks integration, all the in store apps were done through this. But the story she told me was that when I followed her around for a couple of days in 2015, among the surprising and amazing things I saw was a certificate that hung on her desk. And it looks like a, it was printed on an inkjet printer. And it said, Lifetime Achievement Award to Heather O'Sullivan-Mickman for annihilating TEP and LARB. So TEP, I learned, stood for the technology evaluation process, which is a form you fill out whenever you want to do something new. And LARB is a lead architecture review board, which is what you eventually, what you get to attend to pitch your idea. And all the ops and security architects are on one table, all the dev and enterprise architects at the other table, and then they pepper you with questions. They start arguing with each other and they assign you 30 more questions to, come back and, you know, pitch again next month. And her reaction was, why do we have to go through this? None of my engineers should ever have to go through this. None of the two, 3,000 engineers, the target should ever have to go through this. And, you know, she said no one could really remember There was some sort of vague memory from something unspeakably bad happening 20 years ago. But what exactly that was was lost in the midst of time and yet due to her endless and relentless lobbying they dismantled tep and larb earning her this kind of certificate that hung on her desk for years <laughs> so so that courage i think is one of the common hallmarks of these high performers there is, is usually a director senior director who then become vps and svps that is willing to take on these very powerful entrenched orthodoxies <laughs> to do things in a different way and so in the state of devops research uh, we actually tested that uh, there was a we asked fifteen questions among five axes. you know one was vision uh, you know does your leadership understand the greatest goals of the organization? Can you be relevant to them and help advance those goals? The second was intellectual stimulation. you know does your leadership challenge basic assumptions of how we do work? Can they get rid of status quo? Uh, one was inspirational communication, you know the ability to overcome fears, create coalitions, personal recognition, and supportive leadership. So anyway, what we found is that the bottom third of organizations with those behaviors, where only one half is likely to be high performers. And that uh, that certainly crystallized this notion of a common denominator we saw in these stories of a courageous leader willing to say, this doesn't make sense anymore, and I don't care what the rules are, we need to do things in a different way. And ultimately, these are the ones who get rewarded and promoted.
0: Yeah, I I love the idea of courage. And I think also jumping back to a certificate of reducing the complexity within your organization, it really rings of that first ideal that you talk about in the Unicorn Project of locality and simplicity. But, you know, I, I also want to touch upon another ideal. I think it's the fourth one, potentially, about psychological safety. So it kind of, again, how a culture is created, not just from leadership downwards, but also leaders who have the courage to create that vision and communicate that vision, but also developers and middle managers and product managers having the courage to actually say what they really mean and having the courage to make issues and raise errors to make them more visible, so getting back to that point of visibility. So I'd love to understand why it's so important for psychological safety to be a key aspect of the culture within an organization, and how do you think that could really be communicated and, I would say, demonstrated by leadership?
1: Yeah. um, So psychological safety. So it's uh, one of the neatest studies that I've ever read about was the Project Aristotle and Project Oxygen at Google. And so this is another cross-population study that Google did for nearly, uh, I think, over eight years now. And so this was a quest to understand what made their great teams great. And the top factor they found, uh, so this is like hundreds of teams, 60,000 plus respondents, and the top factor year over year was psychological safety as measured by to what degree do members on a team feel safe to say what they really think uh, without fear of ridicule, <laughs> being made fun of, or even being punished. <laughs> and that had a higher degree of a uh, contribution to greatness than structure and clarity of work, meaning of work, impact of work, which is really astonishing. And so, Certainly, Dr. Amy Edmondson um, has written a lot about this. She wrote a book called Fearless. And, and so in my conversations with Dr. Steven Speer, you know, we, we've been talking about this. And I think the reason why this is so important is that kind of one of our goals is to create a very parsimonious way of uh, explaining why organizations work in the way they do, right? Both in the ideal and not ideal. And so to simplify it, to almost an absurd degree, it comes down to the structure of an organization and dynamics. So structure really describes how do we organize our teams? What are the sanctioned ways for nodes within that structure to communicate with each other, right? So to the previous notion, right, does communication go primarily up and down the organization, up eight levels and down eight, <laughs> right? Or is it communicating primarily across the organization, right, without uh, need for vast escalations? And then dynamics is basically everything else. Uh, so architecture, software architecture also belongs, belongs to the structure. Dynamics is, you know, do we have a dynamic where weak signals are amplified, where there's fast feedback on work and sort of uh, weak signals that potentially lead to failures can be received and uh, escalated and decisive countermeasures taken? Or do we have a culture that suppresses bad news because everyone's afraid to say what they really think? And, you know, you end up with something like One of the factors that led to the Columbia and Challenger accidents is that these weak signals got lost, uh, versus what happened in the Apollo space programs, like Mercury, Gemini, Apollo was that their motto was high risk, high gain, right? And their goal was to make sure that any weak signal was quickly amplified and decisively acted upon because, you know, the safety of those astronauts, uh, was so critical to the enterprise because they knew it was an experimental domain. So there's a great paper by, uh, Uh, Dr. Amy Edmondson and Dr. Michael Roberto, uh, just contrasting kind of that culture. They call it the experimental culture of the U.S. space program in the sixties versus the compliance culture that was embodied in the U.S. space shuttle program. Uh, does that answer your question?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think it does. I And I think that that fast feedback culture fits in very well with the agile methodology of just iterating quickly and identifying things that might not work very quickly and, and that failing fast mentality. So I think maybe...
1: Oh, can I just add one more?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: by the way, I apologize, I'm not as uh, good at talking about these because they're still kind of crystallizing in my head, uh, which is why I'm so excited by all these conversations I'm having with Dr. Stephen Spear. And so it's not just a matter of like, getting those signals. Right. I think kind of the hallmarks of the team of team stories that you had all, you know, you had this 21-year-old operator of the intelligence drone right here, she had the answer. <laughs> so not just enough of uh, having the signals, can you quickly propagate it through the system so that you can then act upon it. And so there was a great story about how at the end state they were able to go from sighting of an enemy terrorist leader to capture 45 minutes later. Yeah. Right. So without obviously without requiring vast escalation because you can't even get a meeting with the right person for another week. So I think that's why psychological safety is just one of those important elements for high performance.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I think when you're speaking about this and uh, maybe thinking from, let's say, the perspective of an organization that really hasn't started down this journey, it seems gargantuan, right? You know, we're talking about potentially organizational structural changes, architecture changes from that software side that you mentioned as well, uh, cultural changes, if those aren't there yet. You know, you also have to account for, I would assume, maybe some friction between the different groups because DevOps really requires that collaboration. And so I'm wondering if this seems like a huge, I would say, pill to swallow in terms of how you want to actually get DevOps into your organization. What is your step one? Do you approach this incrementally? Do you target, let's say, organizational structure first? How do you strategically think about that?
1: If there was one recommendation and piece of advice that I would give is, you know, first, know what high performance looks like. And I think people coming into the workforce now probably are better attuned for like how much you can get done in so little time. And that should be such a stark contrast for, you know, what has been built up over decades of neglect in many organizations. So one, you have to know what good looks like. And then the second is uh, understand what practices, uh, what are the underlying principles and then the practices that lead to high performance, right? So the notion of fast feedback, the ability to have collaborations Within teams and between teams, without requiring vast escalations, right? Those are all things that lead to probably bad outcomes. And then the third is to get yourself into a position where you can do something about it. And, and I think one of the questions that uh, many people ask me uh, is, uh, how do you get permission to do the right thing? <laughs> and, right? I think one of my observations is, uh, especially look, look at the DevOps enterprise stories that I admire the most is, they didn't ask for permission. Right? They viewed it as part of their job. Right? Um, so you know th- whether it was hiding capacity to do some experiments to figure out if that could, they can move the needle on things they cared about, whether it was using that 20% time to do, uh, to do the experiments to eventually create a business case to say, hey, look, here's what we were able to do. Can we have more funding so we can do even more of it, <laughs> right? And often the Outcome is uh, not only yes, but hey, you obviously have the best long term interests of the organization at heart. Hey, here's even more responsibility. (laughs) We'll promote you so that you can even do more of it. And and so this seems to be the trajectory of so many people within the DevOps Enterprise community and and, uh, one that I deeply admire.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Yes. That's so interesting. <laughs> I know we only have a few minutes left. I'd love to transition just a little bit to your personal life and maybe kind of more on the personal side. I'd love to hear about how what challenges you faced throughout your your career, maybe some of the biggest maybe mistakes that you've made mm-hmm. uh and how you've learned from those and really tried to incorporate them going forward.
1: Yeah, for sure. I would say that the kind of on that notion of courage. I mean, I think I'm not wired really for that. In fact, I think for during a lot of my years at Tripwire, I had a hard time of saying what I really thought. And eventually this is like became a problem. And there was one thing that I am so grateful for of uh, how I eventually got the reputation of being the only person who said what. Yeah. Everyone was thinking And it was actually, I asked our VP of sales who had a, his name was Bob Dunn. Uh, he was a very loud, boisterous personality and he definitely had a reputation of always saying what he thought. <laughs> right. Uh, and I remember going to him and just asking for his help to rehearse my meetings with my boss, um, Jim Johnson, the CEO of, uh, Tripwire. And his first question is like, what do you want to say? Uh, so yeah, I would, uh, tell him like okay here's here are the things i want to say and and then <laughs> and then uh, he say all right here's what jim will probably say uh, here's what his objections will be and i found that i actually had to get him to say how to overcome those objections <laughs> and so for Months uh, every other week, I would go into Bob Dunn's office and uh, essentially would role play these meetings, and I would leave with a like a mind map uh, of of an entire conversation tree. (laughs) And then I would go into my meetings with Jim Johnson, and uh, eventually called them "Rattle Jim's Cage" uh, meetings, where I just uh, just rehearse (laughs) saying these things. And a year and a half goes by, and I, I start developing this reputation of the only person who's actually. Courageous enough to say what everyone else is thinking. And so uh, I think it's just an example of uh, one of those fake it till you make it and uh, really enlisting the help of someone who could shore up my lack of ability to sort of of go down these conversation paths and just a uh, relentless rehearsal <laughs> in, in practice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I have tried the same myself, thinking through <laughs> the entire uh, flow of a conversation before I actually have it. It's actually quite helpful. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, where do you see your career going or what are you most interested in nowadays and what's your future focus?
2: Yeah,
1: uh, my almost entire area of focus right now is really two things. One is continuing to study uh, the DevOps Enterprise community because I think that they are sitting on uh, the capabilities that, is needed by every organization, right? Digital disruption is on the top of every board agenda and every business leader is trying to figure out like how they probably respond to uh, that digital disruption. I think the answers reside in this, you know, amazing technology leadership community. Uh, the other thing that I'm working on, I think this is actually the first time I'm sharing this uh, publicly is that I've had the privilege over the last almost uh, a half year now of uh, having these three times a week calls with Dr. Steven Spear, uh, really trying to understand how do organizations really work, right? Structure and dynamics, how do they achieve both their ability to uh, adapt and by simplifying the value streams and by being able to do this rapid stabilization. And, and so I would just really, if I could wave a magic wand, I, mean, I think there's a kind of very cohesive cohesive set of beliefs, you know, that Taylorism started, you know, around the scientific management that led to waterfall processes and command and control and deep functional hierarchies. And I think that is definitely a cohesive set of belief and practices. And I think there's a whole bunch of other things like lean, DevOps, agile, psychological safety, you know, even things like holacracy, right? I think they're all uh, part of the same cloth. And if I could wave a magic wand, you know, I'd love to be able to write a book with him that really explains the principles of why those things work. And I think it's going to be important, you know, for not just technology, but every industry. And actually, we actually have Steve on the line.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I uh, I much appreciate the chance to chime in. So just, just one thought, you know, you think about what Gene said. He started his look at the DevOps community in 1999, which puts him somewhere about 15, 20 years behind the community that was looking at Toyota um, and trying to understand why it was so far ahead of all of its competitors. And, uh, you know, I, I consider myself more a community of the uh, – the factory rats than the DevOps community, though Gene's been kind enough to let me uh, hang around and pretend to be one on TV or something like that. What was really quite remarkable, if you look at Gene's really just fantastic life's work, is he paralleled in this uh, cutting edge technology, almost the same approach to coming to understand Toyota that the academic community followed. There was the the massive uh, cross population studies, the deep dives, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, what I find so encouraging and as a source of optimism is that what he what he discovered about devs op, DevOps is uh, a very solid validation of what people discovered about Toyota, was that um, there are a huge variety of uh, performance levels which are achievable. And uh, the way to achieve um, a very high performance level is be very uh, determined and very concerned about the mechanisms by which you Harmonize the contributions of many individual specialists towards common purpose. And, uh, you know, as Gene and I compare notes in these uh, twice in uh, three times a week conversations, we compare notes about what it's like to work, whether it's an industrial organization or, you know, quote unquote, high tech organization, what it's like to the frustrations of working in a normal one and the delight and the joy of working in a high performing one and it's the same delights and it's the same frustrations regardless and and in both cases um those who don't figure out how to do this harmonization this integration of the many into the whole they they, they squander human potential and those who uh, do figure out how to do this harmonization this integration of the many into the whole they find full expression to uh people's innate potential to uh, be creative and uh, generate value for someone else. That will be appreciated. So anyway, I think uh, Gene is uh, well on his way after you know 20 years of effort to giving voice to how that's done. And that's a huge, huge contribution to a uh, society. And uh, consequently, I'm always delighted just to be in tow with his work.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And I, I was just about to comment that it, it is so interesting that a lot of these principles, I would say, are applicable across industry and kind of across organizational size and different team structure as well. So the universality of, of these principles is just always something that's so striking to me. So, Jean, I, I, just to wrap things up, thank you so much for being here. Many of our listeners are current students. And I'd love to kind of give you the last word, maybe motivated by what one piece of advice you would have for these future business leaders and uh, if you have any parting words for them.
1: Uh, For sure. In fact, after our conversation, Christina, uh, I had a kind of an aha moment (laughs) and um, it it was actually, I met another MIT Sloan MBA student, and her name is Deep D. Matnuru. So I met him through Jason Cox, who was uh, director of reliability and systems uh, of platforms and uh, SRE at Disney. And uh, he introduced me to Deep D. McNuru. She was part of the technology leadership uh, rotation program at Disney. It was an amazing program. They looked for people with a Technical background, who put themselves through an MBA program, and if you qualified, they there was a two-year program to do four assignments within Disney. And so, one you learn a lot, but two you'll leave with one of the best networks, you know, inside the organization. And so, uh, among the many things that she did, is she was a product owner for Disney Plus. <laughs> and so uh, that was a like, you know by three years ago so that back then it was just this minuscule part of the disney enterprise but you know because the global pandemic it is it was one of the few portions of disney that wasn't shut down (laughs) you know unlike the theme parks as opposed uh, and the movie theaters so you know I, i think the skills that you're building uh the knowledge that you're arming uh yourselves with there's no doubt in my mind that those skills are needed not just within technology but ultimately uh, the entire organization, I think Deep DemanNuru is just one example <laughs> of uh, the places that that will take you. So you know my best of luck to all of you.